Dear friends, today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We welcome you to this very special last chapel service of the semester where we are so pleased to be honoring Sue Cockley and Nancy Heisey for their upcoming retirements. And thank you so much for joining us with your presence in this space, with your presence online. As we begin our time of worship, I invite you to stand for our call to worship. I invite you to take your voices together and to turn to number 869, 869. And uh, this is one that we will read antiphonally back and forth. <clears throat> I invite the people on this side of the room to uh, function as group one the people on this side of the room can function as group two. Let us join in to this call to worship, number 869. We are a covenant people called to God by God, generation through generation. We are a covenant people called to Jesus by Jesus, losing our life to gain our life. We are a covenant people called to church by the church, weaving together the strong and the weak, the stranger and the friend, renamed, reborn, renewed, we gather ourselves in the community of believers. We gather ourselves unto you. You may be seated. Hymn number 43.
I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. As we prepare to welcome Nancy and Sue to give some remarks upon their retirements, um, you should know that they chose the scripture and the hymn that surround their comments. So we look forward to hearing how you integrate all of these pieces that you are sharing with us today. So let's begin as we welcome Nancy to the stage. In a few minutes, we're going to sing uh, a hymn, and it is known as the Tadeum. I, I first learned this hymn in German with some Russian Mennonite missionary friends in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, and whatever version you sing it in, um, I'm not a big fan of the current version in Voices Together, but that's just a matter of, they didn't look at the Latin. In any case, um, <laughs> The, all of the versions of this hymn carry this strain that the apostolic train serves as the ongoing um, bearer of praise to God. And so for years, I've sung this beloved hymn in many different contexts. And as I sing it, I wonder over and over again, is what I'm participating in now part of that train? I thought about this often when I was part of a very hot and noisy apostolic congregation on the edges of Ouagadougou. I think that when I returned to the congregation in Mountjoy, Pennsylvania, where I was baptized with its relentless worship band, um, and I think about it a lot these days as I'm navigating my way out of EMU. I'm gonna reflect on that question for a few moments, and I'd like to draw on a couple of stories from persons I've met in study and in life. I took on <clears throat> Perpetua's story when I was writing my dissertation. Uh, in particular, the scene where she describes a vision that she had where she uh, becomes manly and is oiled up by an, an attendant so she can wrestle with a fierce Egyptian. 
At the time, I was basically looking at how the Egyptian was portrayed in her vision. But longer term, I continued to revisit this story of the Roman matron and her slave. My dissertation was on Origen's exhortation to martyrdom, and you can look on my uh, list of writings and you'll see that I keep working around the martyr theme and work as part of that question over and over again, I'm asking, what is a witness? And how do we witness? And it's true that a great deal of Perpetua and Felicity's stories um, seem very far from the world that we live in. But as I continue to reread this account, I'm drawn to this particular line from the account of their death, or, or, or the last uh, time they spent in the arena. They are, they are there, they are being attacked by fierce beasts, and I quote, Perpetua, the matron, saw Felicity, her slave, I added that, crushed. She approached her, gave her her hand, and lifted her up, and both of them stood together. That is the kind of witness that I have wanted to be part of and I hope to continue to be part of. Now I'm guessing that most of us go up and down the steps of the main lobby here in the seminary without ever looking at the massive rubbing that's on the south wall. But I look at it often. It's a rubbing that was taking, taken from a monument that was erected in central China in 781 CE to mark more than a century of Christian presence by East Syrians in China. And the photograph here is the cap of the original, which as you can see is located in Xi'an, China. I'd love to know whose idea it was to hang that rubbing on the seminary uh, stairwell. I'd also love to revise the caption, it's not very good. Uh, but if you, if you um, are able to read any of the characters, and a few of my Chinese students over the years have been able to figure out a couple of the, char of the characters in this, they will tell us that it is an account of the religion of light of the West. Now, if you go to the translations, you'll find that people have struggled with this text from a variety of reasons. It's, it's hard to translate, but I want to read just one section of the, uh, the text that you can see if you go down and look at the wall. This is just the capstone. Whereupon, one person of our Trinity, the Messiah, who is the luminous Lord of the universe, folding up himself and concealing his true majesty, appeared upon earth as a man, angels, proclaimed the glad tidings. A virgin gave birth to the Holy One in Syria. A bright star announced the blessed event. Persians saw the splendor and came forth with their tribute. Widely opening the three constant gates, he brought life to light and abolished death. Now, we could raise questions about the Christology of this statement, as many have, uh, but for me, it does matter to honor this struggle to articulate the one who brings life to light. But there's also something troubling about this story, and that is, 
why did this Christian presence in China disappear so completely? Missiologists tend to propose that it was because the, the faith of the East Syrian Christians was too syncretistic. But Samuel Moffat, a historian who has viewed uh, a great deal of uh, the record of Christianity throughout, the, throughout Asia, explains that the disappearance of Christians mostly came from their heavy reliance on the Tang Dynasty, which had uh, made place for them there. Uh, and that dynasty was destroyed in the 900s. We also know from other related texts to this monument that the Syrian monks, when they were asked to summarize the Ten Commandments for their Chinese hosts, summarized them with three great precepts. Obey the Lord of heaven, obey father and mother, obey the sacred emperor. And it's that choice for me that really cries out for serious reflection. I think of it in my current context and in the context in which we all live and work as something we should stop, pause, and wonder about. I also want to mention two men uh, who, both of blessed memory, who have touched my life personally. I could tell stories for an hour about each of them. Both Stephen Ndlovu from Zimbabwe and Lawrence Hart, uh, Cheyenne uh, peace chief from Oklahoma, were active peacemakers in settings where their own lives and those of the people that they uh, worked with had been threatened and continued to be threatened by violence and various forms of oppression. Bishop Ndlovu, the central figure on that photograph, was uh, the leader of the Brethren in Christ Church in Zimbabwe during the latter days of the war to end white minority rule in that country. And once I know that he stood unarmed in the doorway of a church building where many of his people had gathered for worship and denied access to a group of armed men who had demanded to enter. Lawrence Hart, who died earlier this spring, uh, was both a peace chief and a Mennonite pastor. And I'd like you to just see a brief clip of a video from him. ...to the next stage of his life. I think I saw myself as becoming a man. Many of his ancestors had been warriors before they were peacekeepers, and Lawrence Hart was no different. He saw his military service as crucial to his next mission, ministering to his people. The Mennonite faith is compatible with the uh, peace chief tradition. I mean, we have chiefs who vow never to use force. Lawrence and his wife Betty have been married for 55 years and have pastored the Kononia Mennonite Church in Clinton for almost this long. They also established... Um, that goes on to refer to his work then with the Cheyenne Cultural Center. Uh, let me just say one other word about both of these uh, saints. I want to honor in particular their careful attention to signs. Uh, in the case of Bishop Ndlovu, I remember very distinctly 
um, uh, when I flew into Bulawayo one night in 1980, just as the war was coming to an end, um, I had no idea. I, my flight was delayed by about seven or eight hours, so it was midnight. I had no idea how unsettled uh, the the Matabele land area was at that point, and I didn't know that the airport was 20 miles from town. And when I got off the plane, I saw this tall man standing there with a bishop's collar on. And um, he said, I thought it would be good for me to dress the part in case we get stopped on the way back to town. I also want to just briefly mention a presentation that I was a part of when Lawrence Hart was speaking with a gathered community of indigenous Canadian and American Mennonites. And he probed in great, uh, with great thoughtfulness the use of the eagle feather in worship. I have never heard anyone so carefully lay out the tensions, the challenges, the blessings, and the potential dangers of that particular act. And so I give thanks for both of them and for the attention that they gave to symbols, and I pray that the witness that I am part of may continue to be alert to signs, both old and new. And finally, I want to speak briefly about Mary Raber. I met her when we were young MCC workers. She was on her way to Italy to work with Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union, and we've been in touch ever since. For the last uh, 20 or so years, Mary has taught at the Odessa Theological Seminary in Ukraine, which is now serving as a center for humanitarian aid and respite for aid workers to war victims. Mary is back in the US now and is living daily with the anguish of her beloved friends with whom she tries to stay in touch throughout the Ukraine. I've been trying to keep in touch with her as a way of praying about that situation. In one recent email to me, she said, we struggle not with flesh and blood. Indeed. It is so easy to observe the war in Ukraine as one of material and bodily atrocities, which it is. Yet I also note that this very weekend past, the Moscow Patriarchate refused to proclaim a paschal truce in the war. And then I remember Father John Burden, a Russian Orthodox priest in a small village who publicly has criticized the invasion of Ukraine. And he says, it's about the Bible. If I remain silent, I am not a priest. As far as I know, Father John has been fined, but not yet imprisoned. So, often for me, the praise song of the apostolic train seems so faint as to be nearly inaudible, yet I continue to sing along. As Sarah Coakley puts it, live in this mystical body, which is the blessed company of all faithful people who walk with you in this great adventure of the Christian life. For Christ is risen indeed. Let's stand as we sing the Te Deum, number 126. If you have your hymnal and wish to sing in German, please feel free to do so. We will have the English up on the screen. Oh, 
from the 33rd Psalm. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Praise the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to God with the harp of ten strings. Sing to the Lord a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host by the breath of God's mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle. He put the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For God spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of God, God's heart to all generations. Thank you, Stuart, for that good reading of the verse. If any of you have checked my personal page on the EMU website or my account on LinkedIn to find out what seminary I attended and whether I am a biblical scholar or a theologian, you have searched in vain. You know that I do not have any seminary training. Please don't expect careful exegesis or detailed interpretation of the Greek, or the Latin for that matter, <laughs> or even the German, at, in, my, in my brief talk this morning. I was very glad that Courtney asked for a personal reflection. I spend a good portion of my time navel-gazing, so I'm comfortable with that. I'd like to reflect on change, how we react to it, how we might learn from it, what it says about our place in the universe. Scholars who study adult development like to categorize change into types of change that we anticipate and, and others that we don't see coming. Like most people my age, I've experienced many of the first type, leaving home, committing to a marriage partner, having children, getting a job, changing jobs, moving. Some change events are more serious disruptions, even though they are expected, such as losing a parent in their late 80s. Even positive, welcome changes, like having a baby, also bring a degree of disorientation and stress. I wonder how retirement will fit into this list of expected events. Many different factors can make these changes easier or more difficult, but most of us manage to get through them. These events temporarily disrupt what we think of as normal life, bringing a sense of losing comfortable familiarity and an apprehension about the future. Until the future comes, we gradually accommodate to it. Once this happens, it becomes a new normal. I've also experienced the second type of change, the unexpected change. For me, this has been an event that more profoundly challenged my sense of normal 
making me feel insecure and rudderless. In November of 1985, it rained for four days straight. At the time, I was living in West Virginia, fairly high up on Spruce Knob Mountain with my husband Dave and our two children, Miriam, who was four, and Kate, who you know as Kate Clark, perhaps, was 10 months old. The rain wasn't a heavy downpour with thunder and lightning and wind, but it was very steady and around the clock. On the morning of the third day, actually it might have been the fourth, but I thought this sounded more biblical, so I kept it in. <laughs> On the morning of the third day, Dave took our car and went to Pocahontas County to give a presentation at a high school. The girls and I went with a friend down the mountain over to Franklin for our weekly playgroup get-together. The rain continued on. Around noon, someone called us to say that the primary road to our house on the mountain was starting to slip and get dangerous. The mountain soil had absorbed all the water it could, and the little runs and creeks were rising incredibly fast. The girls and I would have to spend the night in Franklin. Dave told me later about his risky drive home that afternoon. Most of the way, he traveled on a road that went close beside what was now a roaring river. The road was right up to the mountain on one side, and the river water was beginning to lap up onto the road on the other side. The trees along the far bank were falling, one after another, unable to stay rooted in the soaked soil. He did some crazy driving that day over bridges that probably were not safe and crossed one section of water in the wake of a large truck. Not recommended. Please do not try that. <laughs> that evening, Dave and I spoke on the phone to say we were both safe. He was at home on the mountain. The girls and I were in the Franklin apartment of a friend. The phone, went, phone line went dead before we could say goodbye. 18 people in our rural county of 8,000 were killed. Many lost their lives, their, their home stock, their livestock, their farm equipment and businesses. Friends of ours in Riverton took refuge on their roof one night and later a tree that was next to their house as the water rose around their house. A small cluster of houses and a sawmill at the foot of our mountain was gone with no trace that anything had ever been there. Some roads now resembled riverbanks with huge boulders and no paving in sight. After a couple of days, some of the roads were cleared to the point where Dave could come and take us home. We had few neighbors on the mountain and none of them were very close. Living so high up, our house was safe from flooding, but the electricity was out for over three weeks. The phone was out for six weeks. No cell phone back then. Every day, Dave went off the mountain with several of our neighbors to help county officials coordinate recovery efforts, communicating over CB radios, finding out which houses were still standing, who was still missing, getting groceries and supplies to people. I stayed home with the girls, trying to cook on a wood stove, heating water on the fire to hand wash diapers. It was lonely, dark, and cold. It was November, remember. Afterwards, 
I realized how close I had come to serious depression during that time, how disconnected I felt from everyone, how guilty I felt for not being out there helping. I had no control over anything. I questioned my own self-image as someone who could cope in an emergency. The electricity finally returned and life slowly became more normal, but ever since then I carried a fear inside me that another catastrophic thing would happen to me and I would fall into that dark place once again and maybe not manage to get out. Serious change is frightening. We normally go through our days with confidence that we are able to control a lot of our daily life. Big change disrupts that confidence and the feeling of not being able, being in control is so uncomfortable that we often go to great lengths to, to avoid it. We want things to be as they were or as we think they have been for a long time, we have, as we have come to expect. We know how to conduct ourselves, how to plan, even how to relax in the before time. We fear for what might happen in the future and suspect we will not be able to cope. This sequence can happen when change occurs in our personal lives, our communities, our workplace, and our congregations. Fast forward to March 2020 and a second catastrophic time arrived in my life, our lives really, as suddenly and unexpectedly as the flood. The pandemic shut, shut down put me back, literally overnight, into that feeling of losing control. But this time, I didn't experience the darkness that I had experienced when I was younger. <clears throat> Maybe it was because I didn't have young children at that point, maybe it was the close community I felt with the other deans and Fred when we met daily on Zoom. It was probably a combination of things. But I think a major reason was that in the time in between these two events, I have experienced many lesser changes that have taught me gently, gradually, carefully, that change can be both painful and life-giving, often at the same time. For example, my role here at EMU has changed many times, especially in the last six years. I've even kept my old name tags to remind me of the recent upheavals. Actually, there's, I think there's about six in here and there's at least one that's missing. Each time I changed jobs, new responsibilities have forced me out of my comfort zone to be sure, but they've also brought some consolation. The most important consolation, the one I hold on to as I approach retirement, is that God is always there in the messiness. And I've come to really trust this. I've learned that I never had the control that I thought I had. This is really a good thing. And when I've managed to get over feeling offended at this downgrading of my self-image, I have felt real relief. I've also come to realize how important gratitude is. Being thankful for whatever is coming my way, even if it's a little scary, is an active response to change. It's something I can do about it. It is me saying in advance, before there's any evidence, that I trust God in this moment. It is grounding and healing. Being able to trust that God is still present, being able to remember that being able to remember that, 
to pay attention to how God's presence shows up in my life and being able to be thankful for it every time, all of this has reconciled me to change. It is quite a blessing because I know changes, both pleasant and uncomfortable, are not over for me. In many ways, my experience of change, loss of control, and gratitude for God's faithfulness is still at work in me to prepare me to meet the challenges ahead. Several years ago, Kevin Clark was a speaker at our church retreat. He reminded us of something that has really stayed with me. He said, we think we are human beings trying to figure out how to be spiritual, but in reality, we are spiritual beings learning how to be human. Change through its discomfort and disorientation, its abrupt reality check, moves us away from complacency and reminds us that we are not in total control. And eventually, that it can assure us, change can assure us that God is always present. Change can lead to growth, and through change, we learn what it means to be human and what it means to be loved. Let's stand as we sing number 203, stanzas one through four, and then six. invited to share either a memory or a blessing with either Sue or Nancy. So you are welcome to come forward to this microphone or we have a microphone back here that I can walk around. And if you are joining us by Zoom and wish to share a memory, uh, make sure that you signal in the chat 
that you want to do so and we can um, make accommodations for that. Um, so, uh, I've worked with Nancy Heisey for 16 years, um, and for about 10 of those, I've said that when she retires, I retire. <laughs> I've also, for about 10 of those years, said when Dave Detro retires, I retire. <laughs> so, I'm not about to announce my resignation, but uh, I, uh, Nancy's been... Um, my mentor and my friend, my boss, my counselor. Um, so or maybe I'll just say to keep this brief, every Friday for as long as I can remember, Nancy Heisey and Rita Finger have met in Nancy's office to translate Greek. And um, I'm sure they're not just translating Greek because if they were, the Anabaptist Women's New Testament would have been out a long time ago. I'm sure partly it's, you know, uh, Nancy complaining about how hard it is to work with me. Um, but that, so I walk by there every Friday and I see Nancy and Rita, Rita translate. Sometimes I knock on the door, ask what they're working on. And so that image of Nancy for me sort of says four things. One is Nancy's incredible efficiency that she was able to uh, be dean and of the university and the seminary, um, Mennonite World Conference, chair of a really problematic department, publish scholarly articles, and also have time to just stop and take, how long do you do it? Hour, two hours, an hour, translate Greek every Friday, even on Christmas break. Um, second is her dedication to her craft, right? That this is something you don't, that you don't just teach it two days a week, you also work on it yourself. And the third thing is, um, as she just said, it's about the Bible, right? Her, her commitment to a relationship with scripture. And the fourth thing is that she does this every Friday with her friend, right? And you saw in this, um, in her presentation, it was a presentation of the network of friends that Nancy has created over the years and her commitment to them and her commitment to a lot of us and uh, that's been um, the greatest gift of my 16 years here. So thank you, Nancy. I mean, there's not much to say after that, except I want to acknowledge, uh, Sue, I don't really know you that well, but I think this probably applies to you as well, just how fearless you've both been. Nancy, um, you're one of the most brave people I know in this community, so thank you.
thank you, Sue, for all you've done for EMU. You are such a support for adult learners. I've noticed that for, throughout your career. And so I'm grateful for that and your support of the library. And we hope to see you in the library every now and then. So, and Nancy, thank you for your support of the library and of everything here at EMU. But I'm also grateful for the times that I've gotten to do things with you. Going to Montreal, we won't talk about too much of what happened there, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so good times, and thank you for trusting me to be your co-leader, um, even though I didn't know French very well. She used to make me go order coffee in French. I didn't do very well, but I did, we did get coffee, so that's always a good thing. <laughs> so, and I'm grateful to you for your commitment to Patrick Pantry. Um, it's, I will look forward to not maybe seeing you on campus for as much, um, but you're always, we hope you come to the library a lot too, and, um, but I will look forward to seeing you on Wednesdays at Pantry, so thank you. There are um, a lot of stories I could tell, but I'm not going to tell them. Instead, I'm going to read a prayer of blessing that I brought. Um, and I have two qualifications as I read it. Um, one is that I, I know that there are uh, many ways to retire and that participation in the work goes on um, in a variety of ways. And the other is that it includes um, a kind of audacious analogy, um, and so I, I hope that you will hear the, but I, th I think it's right anyway. Anyway, okay, so that, that's the Old Testament <laughs> scholar, I guess, about prefacing the uh, Old Testament analogy that you'll hear in a moment. I hope that you'll pray with me. Let's pray. Creator God, look with kindness and blessing upon Nancy and Sue, our co-workers, in their transition into retirement. Grant them the time to survey their good works among us and entrusting their labors to you. Grant them satisfaction and fulfillment as you had on the seventh day when you rested and saw that it was good. We praise you, God of love, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, this is for both of you. I don't know whether every institution is blessed in the way this one is to have people like yourselves who have multiple varied gifts and who are open to using them in multiple and varied ways, very different ones um, among us. And so I want to thank both of you for, um, I was thinking you kind of made my little speech for me, uh, Sue, because you talked about all the changes that you've been through uh, being here. And, but both of you have, have worked in very um, significant ways, in different ways, here in this institution. And I want to bless you both for that and to uh, express the gratitude of uh, this institution that is blessed with people that have multiple gifts and are willing to use them in multiple fashions among us. Thank you.
Right, as a um, university chaplain uh, and former campus pastor, I just want to acknowledge how both of you have um, nurtured a productive collaborative relationship with, with uh, my office. Um, we have a, a strong vocational affinity uh, with Bible, religion, theology, seminary, and, and the school. Um, Nancy, when I was new in this role, you, as much as anyone, started the work of rebuilding partnership and collaborative uh, relationship with, between Bible religion then and campus ministries. And I thank you for that. I think it set, set uh, the pace that we've just been able to continue. And you as dean of this school, and I look forward to continued um, partnership with, with all of you and, and others certainly the whole university, but an affinity with this particular school. Let's take time for one or two others. So Nancy is my second cousin, and Sue was my boss for several years. And I just want to say a word of appreciation about each of them. Uh, Nancy and I have been in a supper club together with uh, her brother Paul and others for a number of years. And I will occasionally cite the latest sociological research and try to give some insights into some hot topic. And Nancy will almost always counter with 1,700-year perspective on theology and history, <laughs> which is far more grounding than my um, more immediate observation. And Sue is one of the most creative human beings that I know. Her ability to start the degree completion program and then the MAOL, the Organizational Leadership Masters, uh, as other programs were waxing and waning. Uh, and she constantly encouraged me when I was a program director. And the transition from boss to colleague was seamless, which is a testimony to you. So I'm glad that I will continue to see both of you in the community. Sue and Nancy, would you join us, or join me, up front? We have a bit of a gift that we want to present to you. We have here Certificate of Achievement, lists the years that they have served EMU. At the bottom here, it says, in red, with an exclamation point, you're retired! So this is something that you can hang on your wall. We may save it until after, you know, in the next couple of weeks of celebrations until you're really retired. But every now and then, glance at it and remind yourself, you're retired. Enjoy. <laughs> and we have a plant that we want to give to both of you. Uh, Sue's, I believe that this shape plant is often called a money tree, so, you know, you can 
it will come in handy. And um, <laughs> Nancy, yours reminds me of tropical paradise. So we hope that these will signify blessings that will abound in your retirement. So um, would you please, Stan, how about you hold your certificates? Because I know that we do have some uh, photographs that, that need to be taken and recognized. <laughs> And our associate dean, Sarah Bixler, has written a parting blessing to share with you two. Will you all pray with me? Faithful God, we give you thanks for the dedicated service of Sue and Nancy to Eastern Mennonite University and Seminary. Each has responded to your call, embraced their vocation within Mennonite education, and served faithfully. We reflect with wonder and awe on how many lives your spirit has shaped through their teaching, leadership, and service. We are grateful for the empowering way in which these women of faith have led with clarity, excellence, and humility. Bless them in their coming retirement from their formal positions at EMU. We trust that you will continue to call out their vocation in this new season ahead. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Hymn number 531.
Dear friends, as we go forth, carry the love, the joy, the energy of Christ that we have experienced today into this last week of classes, into your final exams, and into the summer. We pray a blessing on all of you. Go in peace. Amen.